Spread the Fire fam. Welcome back to SMWX. If you're new around here, my name is Dr. Cesar Mbofu-Walsh and on this channel we explore South African politics through interviews and analysis. And in today's episode, I have something quite different for you. We're going to be shifting our focus to the question of education. Around the world, questions of anti-racist teaching, decolonizing education have risen to the forefront of the political debate. And a new book workbook for teachers, lecturers around how to teach and work within an anti-racist and decolonized environment has just been published. The book is called Anti-Racist Teaching Practices and Learning Strategies and it's written by Drs. Warren Likely Chalklin and Tobani Kambela. And these two academics, both of them with PhDs, both of them with experience across the United States and South African teaching landscapes, have put together their practical guide to how to teach in an anti-racist and decolonized way. And so in this conversation, I explore the book with its authors. And I hope if you're a teacher, if you're a student, if you're working in a school or in a university, or if you have an interest in education, both globally but also in South Africa, that this episode will speak directly to you. Like, share, subscribe. If you want access to the book, all the information is down in the descriptions below. Let's get started. So uh, Warren and Tobani, thanks so much for joining. Uh, the SMWX family on this episode and I'm really keen to kick into this conversation about the book um, so I guess before we get started it'll be really interesting to understand how you both came to this topic and how this book actually came about um, so shall we start with with you Warren this this book is a is a labor of love, uh, as Tobanya and I have described it over time. It it came about as a result of reflecting on the system of education here in America, where I'm based, but also reflecting on the global nature of of education and, and recognizing that the system is not going to provide resources to dismantle itself. And so those resources have to come. Uh, we're all part of the system in some way, right? But th those resources have to come um, from outside formal educational structures. And so really it was a, a thought process of we're asking teachers to, to decolonize their spaces, to teach through equitable lenses, to teach through anti-racist lenses. But the only professional development resources they have are from the organizations that, that are putting them in these positions. And so I reached out to Tobani, we, we worked together um, on a few projects, and I said, I have this idea, what do you think? And Tobani, I'll hand it over to you. I don't know what your thoughts were when I first brought the idea to you. What, 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 what was going through your mind? <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, just the first thing to start with, which is, I think, as Warren was saying, I think both of us in many ways started the handbook without really even knowing at the time that our work was preparing us for, for, for it. Um, when I think about myself, I've been very engaged um, in various aspects of higher education, but also working with high schools for at least 12 years um, since I matriculated. So I think all of those works, um, workshops we would do for high school students, um, workshops working with universities, trying to create more inclusive 
environments and so on, I think ultimately led me to this, um, to this collaboration with Warren. Um, but just to cut a very long story short, um, I think for me, uh, Warren and I were working on various projects um, that had a lot to do with sort of training schools um, in anti-racist practices, how to examine biases and so on. And so that's where I um, came in, but I think it's work that I've been engaged in up until welcome, you, sorry, um, up until um, Warren provided this opportunity for us to really collaborate, had never really thought to put into a coherent document where people can follow a trail. How do we think about um, racism beyond sort of the interpersonal, but to think about the structures and economic systems that really allow us to have these very diverse um, education systems, one for really elite, very functional um, schools and with no unfortunate descendants in the South African context and in the US. Um, one that um, is often very inequitable, particularly to black students and students of color. So that was really where I started to come in. And I really thought, you know, for me, it would have been such a resource um, as a yeah, to have a book. Um, and I think this is the question that Warren and I encounter a lot. And of course, people are interested in the theory. You can cite the bell hooks and Pumla Kola, um, all these critical educational scholars, but people are really interested in how do we move. And so that was really my entry point. Um, and I had recently been given an opportunity to do a teaching portfolio in the university that really allowed me to think about all of my teaching life, what I've done well, what hasn't worked, the role of racism, the role of class, gender, sexuality, and so on. So it was a really perfect time um, to really put together um, some of the lessons and experiences I've had um, teaching in very diverse um, um, institutions. Absolutely, it's a, it's a practical workbook which, as you say, gets right into the nitty-gritty of the classroom, assessments. Um, but before we get onto some of that detail, which I think is very helpful for teachers, lecturers in various environments, you know, the, the book focuses on actually two different registers, uh, one of decolonization, which has become prevalent, especially in the South African university space, for example, but also of anti-racism. Um, so anti-racist teaching practices and learning strategies, but also there's decolonization in the subtitle and in other parts of, of the book. So take us through what what do you mean by these these topics or, or these, these words? Um, and why you thought it was important to link them to a practical workbook? I'll take I'll take a portion of it if you don't mind, Kavani. Um, yes, I, I I think you know being a teacher, I'm a you know I did my bachelor's of education at WITS. Um, I've done my postgraduate studies teaching pre-service teachers um, in in the in the United States, and really the question of equity always sort of comes up. Um, the, the idea of what is equity and when you really begin to unpack the coding of what equity means what we're actually looking for is it's, it's a palatable word for, for challenging power and dismantling power so underneath equity we have you know anti-racism and, and, and you know anti-sexism and anti-classism and, and these sort of pieces and what we found especially in this context, that anti-racism has become this sort of buzzword. It's become this sort of paradigm through which you see organizations reshaping themselves to be anti-racist. Now, in many ways, that is absolutely um, beautiful and powerful. But the question then becomes, 
what about the paradigm that we are actually reframing? Why, why are we talking about reframing and not decolonizing, right? And the question of decolonization is about really questioning the very ways in which we see, be, relate, and operate in the world. And so for a teacher to say, well, I'm teaching through an anti-racist practice, which means that my students, regardless of, of who they might be, are going to succeed in an institution designed to produce um, their oppression and to reproduce their oppression, anti-racism is but one of the strategies that, that, that we have to think about. We have to think intersectionally. We have to not only think intersectionally, but we have to think about the structures and paradigms that we are operating from. And I felt as a teacher, using the language of anti-racism was helpful in so many ways, but was unhelpful in other ways because it limited my, my ability to question the very context, to question the very systems and structures that we are talking from. And it limited those um, when talking about these other intersectionalities. So what we tried to do with this workbook was engage teachers not only to teach effectively, but to teach against teach against the test, teach against the knowledge, teach against the classroom management that they have been taught, not to do that better in some cases, right? It's appropriate to do it better in some, but it's actually appropriate to completely reframe and completely dismantle the ways we've been doing it before. So we wanted to give people those two things to grapple with in this workbook um, as a way to help them not only change, but dismantle and reframe and reimagine. Um, what their teaching practice could be like and what their education system can be like um, in totality. Uh, Kobani, I know we've spoken about this piece a lot, particularly the decolonization piece. I'm curious um, what your reflections are on that, that front. So just as a caveat, I mean, I, was, I started teaching around 2011, but in terms of formal um, permanent teaching, I started in 2015, which was an interesting year in the South African education system because it was quote unquote, um, the year of decolonization. And I think my entry point very similarly to, to Warren was really this idea of, um, we, when we think about decolonization, rightly so, right? We think about statues, we think about institutions, we think about names, we think about so many factors, all, all of which have their place and are really important. But my favorite definition actually of, de of decolonization comes from Dr. Ntabiseng Motseme's work, and I know she draws on various other scholars to get to this point, Feynon and all of them, which is really just the simple definition of decolonization is a new way of seeing things, right? And for me, um, when I think about de decolonization, of course, I think about the quote unquote big structures, right, that need to be challenged, all the economic systems and so on, that keep particularly students of color and black students, particularly in South Africa, outside of um, the education system, or if they are inside um, in very oppressive um, um, conditions. So, so when I think of, I think decolonization with that definition by Motsama really allows us to think in very broad terms, right? Which is what Warren and I were trying to think about. We're trying to think about classroom management strategies, um, trying to think about, you know, teaching in more compassionate ways and so on. And I think all of those, the key line that's really central with all of them is really a new way um, of perceiving and new ways of thinking about things and also really unlearning, right? Because a lot of these teachers, um, certainly in the higher education sector that I deal with, have been the, at this institution since, you know, um, the peak of apartheid. So we can't just assume that, you know, just because there's this new era that people are able to now all of a sudden let go of all of those assumptions. So how do we start to think about practically, like I said, um, not just theoretically, how do we 
to get people to see and to be able to relate um, in new ways. And that for me is the simplest um, sort of form of thinking about decolonization. It includes, of course, the macro, but also the micro interactions, which I think are so central in the education sector, sometimes more than the, the, more than the structural. So that, that was my entry point into these concepts. And in addition to that, if I, if I might add something here, that one thing we understand about how the, the, the context of, of the colonial structure here in the United States and elsewhere around the world, it has this ability to nebulate itself. And so anti-racism, you know, we see Amazon saying that they are anti-racist, they pledge to anti-racism, but they, you know, the, the way they, they contribute significantly to the dehumanization of of black bodies. And so the question that we had to ask ourselves was how will the system nebulate in this context of anti-racism? And we see this in the way that organizations are turning this into marketing campaigns. You see Lexus having a person there talking about inclusion and diversity and equity while they're selling you a car, okay? And so we could not produce a workbook that only focused on anti-racism, we had to include decolonization so that people can begin to decode the ways in which anti-racism will pacify um, over time, the way it will be co-opted, the language of anti-racism will be co-opted to maintain and reproduce uh, the current unjust structures. So without the concepts, without the new way of thinking, are we looking at this? How are we looking at this? Where's the power? How is it operating? Without that, those questions, we couldn't find ourselves back where we were, thinking that we're making progress. Um, and so that's sort of what we try to do here with this, these different set of tools. We've heard a lot about the, we've spoken a lot about the, the theoretical backdrop of this book, but I think it's great virtue is how practical this workbook is in the classroom, in the lecture hall. So could you just give our uh, viewers a quick taste of how, you know, framing teaching practices in the context of anti-racism and decolonization plays out practically in the classroom environment. Absolutely. And I think this links to um, sort of Warren's last points, which is, I think, well, one of the things we wanted, and uh, we know sort of the critique of anti-racism work, particularly when it's done by men, is that it tends to be, it tends to lack intersectionality, right? Considerations of issues of gender, issues of sexuality, and so on. And so that was a really important start for us. So one of the key things we talk about, right, from the beginning of the work, workbook, for instance, is this idea that, um, that comes from medical anthropology of the Cartesian duality, that the mind, body, and soul are separate, right? And we want to go against that. So we've actually embodied ourselves in some of the narratives and we share both things that have worked, but also cases where, you know, these things in practice. And I'll just share two examples, I mean, that I talk about um, in the book in relation to my own teaching experiences which is the current university I teach at um, attracts students from predominantly low-income backgrounds. Um, that's just the, the profile. And the majority of the students, um, certainly in our faculty, are uh, over 90% Black. Um, and so I had come from a predominantly white institution before, where it's the opposite. It attracts uh, primarily kids from very elite private schools and so on. Um, my students had cars and um, very, um, optimal lives of well-being, um, which is not to erase the kinds of struggles that they also might have had. But so when I first moved um, to this um, new institution, I would lock the door, which is what my lecturers had done. And I had sort of picked it up as the normal that if you're not in class, 
in five minutes that you lock the door because you're assuming the student just didn't want to come. Um, but I learned the hard way um, at the current institution that you know you can't make those kinds of assumptions, right? Even as a person who shares, shares the same racial background as my students, but certainly there's a class stratification and of course power dynamics in being the teacher and so on. And so that was one of the examples for me where I think um, it intertwines not just in terms of anti-racist work, but also thinking about the intersectionality of class and the kinds of students we had. And I since learned from my own students who are very respectfully approached me, but to share, you know, that many of them have two hour commutes to get to campus. There are often taxi strikes. There are often um, various kinds of structural limitations that affect how they get to campus. So you can't kind of make the assumptions that by the mere fact that they are late that it's really because they don't want to be there. So, and I think that's what an example of, right? Because when you think about, like we said, we don't just want anti-racist work, we want decolonial, new ways of seeing things. And that was something that I was completely blindsided for. I just assumed like I had at the previous institution that everyone has equal chance. So I think that's one of them. Um, I won't go into the second example because I wanna give Warren a chance to sort of contribute as well. Mm. Warren? The workbook is essentially in five key areas. We look at knowledge, we look at lesson preparation, we look at, teach, at uh, lesson strategies, teaching practices and classroom assessment and classroom management. And in each of those areas, I, I think many teachers can sit down and find an example of that. And so what I'm gonna try and do is just find um, one example from my own practice. That, that links as a teacher in South Africa, and then the same situation happened when I was a graduate student in the US, because I want to build these, these overlaps, these bridges. So when I was teaching in a private school in South Africa, um, we did the poem Hair by Makosa Zanakaba, where um, Makosa Zanakaba talks about the process of, of the, the relationship that she has with the person whose hair that she is, that she is, um, quote unquote, massaging the scalp that she's massaging, and 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 just the relationship, the significance of hair. Now, I, as a white male um, teacher, thought I was actually being very equitable and diverse, bringing this quote unquote, you know, including diverse voices in the curriculum, in the syllabus. Okay, and I thought that honestly, this is a way of of bringing students into the learning process. Now, on paper, that is the predominant narrative that we have as teachers. In other words, we are told that the solution to inequity is to bring in diverse voices. And that's part of it. So that's the knowledge piece. But the question then becomes, how did I prepare my lesson? How did I prepare my lesson? Well, I prepared it in the way that I had been taught. And the way that I had been taught had been developed in the 1950s, where the student sits down and listens to me teaching and interpreting the poem for them. And all they do is have a pencil or a pen in their hand and they underline the tone, the register. And what I'm looking for when I test them, in other words, when I assess them, is for them to give me what I've told them to do. And so my classroom management is designed with me centered in the classroom. My teaching strategies, as I've mentioned, are very, very um, industrial in so many ways. And yet I'm teaching 
in a way that gives me the sense that I am being teaching against the grain. You know, I took off Charles Dickens and I replaced Charles Dickens with Makosa Zanakaba. I am woke. I am, I've arrived, right? I am an anti-racist, decolonized teacher. So the question I have for those who are listening is, as you listen to the way that I'm, that w- what I'm describing, let us actually think, let us actually dig deeper into the teaching strategies. The, I think the choice of text was fantastic. We, we, there's, there's resistance there. But now what happens next? And that is where I really began to, to understand. Well, later on, I realized that I never was asked to reflect on myself, my positionality as a white person. The, the way that I am interpreting this text. And of course, we had three um, black students in the classroom. Can you tell me your perspective on, on hair and the politics of hair as if they are voices for everybody? Okay. And so what we try to do in this workbook is walk teachers, specifically educators, and not just teachers and educators in formal, but informal settings too, parents, students, activists, to think about once we have decolonized knowledge, how do we then create spaces of decolonized teaching practices? How do we then convert that intention, if you will, in the beginning? How do we thread that through in our practice? How do we decenter ourselves as teachers? How do we, how do we bring our own biases and make them explicit for, for students to unpack them and to challenge us on them? Can I ask on, on, that, on that subject? Um... I think it's really it's both fascinating examples um, because while I was reading through the workbook the question that came to my mind is exactly the one that you're raising now which is that there's, there's a co-production of, of knowledge in a, in a decolonial environment um, and, and as you say the teacher is or, or, the, or the authority figure their, their role is completely rethought. Um, what, what does a teacher, what does a lecturer, what does someone in a decolonial teaching environment, an anti-racist teaching environment do at the moment of rupture, at the moment when a student challenges them or the curriculum or the way things are working in the classroom. Sure, that moment seems like a really important moment um, and one that I think your workbook helps people within these environments where these ruptures are happening to, to think through. So the question, yeah. the question of a teacher is only relevant if we analyze the institution of education and if we analyze the structure within that institution is, is in place. Right. So when we think about knowledge, there is so much knowledge. It's almost like a galaxy. It's almost like a galaxy okay, of knowledge. And yet we have a, a way in which certain knowledge has been plucked out of the so-called galaxy and packaged into so-called subjects in order to be to be implemented through an institution. OK. And that institution is both the education system, the school, the classroom, and ultimately the relationship between the teacher and the student. Now, if we think about the fact that it is not just by some natural phenomenon that we have certain things we learn and certain things we don't, those choices are choices about power, 
what we learn and what we don't learn prepares us and, and unprepares us. And so, for example, many of the reasons why we can't have conversations about justice is because the system is designed to produce an outcome through this institution. Now, before I get to this, this question of the rupture, there's another important, important piece, that the relationship between the teacher and the student is the same relationship we see in other areas of society. We see this in the relationship between the state and the citizen. We see this in the relationship, for example, in the police and a citizen. We see this in the relationship on the factory floor between the so-called manager and the worker. We see this in various ways. And what we see is an asymmetrical relationship in which there is someone with authority over another person. Now, that authority comes from the institution. So what I'm trying to say is in a colonized context, the teacher is very distinct from the student. The teacher would not exist without the student within a colonized paradigm. And the student would not exist without a teacher. This institution, this idea of a student and this idea of a teacher. A teacher on the street gets, would not have the same institutional authority as they do when they're standing in the classroom. Because they're not talking on their behalf. They're talking on the school's behalf. The school is talking on the government's behalf, and the government is talking on behalf of capital. Okay. And so in that relationship, the process is to subdue the, the student to consume not only the knowledge, but also the social norms, but also the ways of behavior, so that they can eventually take their place in the capitalist um, economy, in the intersectional um, areas. So when these ruptures take place... They, they take place at different levels. The first level is at the, the internal level. The student themselves experiences a dissonance between their lived experience, right? The violence that occurs between their lived experience and the silence that is being imposed on them. Okay, and when they resist that, you know, when students talk about finding their voice, that process is resisting the ways in which the system is, is forcing them to submit. So that's a, an internal process that erupts into an interpersonal space. And this is where the teacher has a responsibility to understand that they cannot become personalized in their authority. They have to understand their position in the structure of power and, un, and unearth that, help us understand that. And what they will do in dialogue with the student is recognize that relationship actually begins to create a teacher and student become interchangeable with one another. And so in dialogue, instead of seeing discipline, right? Instead of seeing discipline as discipline, let's see it as understanding. One of the things Kobani uh, writes about is instead of saying, what's wrong with you? We need to be asking, what happened to you? Why did you react like that? What, what's going on? And opening up the, the student's sense of, of awareness of themselves. Because once they begin to reflect on their own humanity and look past the teacher to the systems and institutions, they can begin to see the ways in which these are operating to impact them. And that's what the, the, the teacher's job is to do that. A teacher who reproduces power submits that, that student through the various policies, discipline policies and procedures, and sometimes physical action where we have corporal punishment and beating the student. But what we're asking for is a completely different paradigm, a paradigm in which the teacher works with 
becomes the student, becomes the teacher, builds a relationship in which we can all begin to see the ways in which these different layers are operating in the classroom space and dismantle that asymmetric power structure that exists between them. That's the vision. That's the vision of this workbook um, in, in, in a nutshell. Uh, I hope I haven't left anything out, Gobani, but I know that's something we've spoken about in various ways. Gobani, any, any thoughts or reflections on that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I spent quite a lot of time, um, I think, on, at least on two chapters of the book, um, sharing anecdotes of instances where students, in some ways, were speaking back. And I think, um, I think the one that I really sort of really clearly articulated was the, the medical anthropology course I taught in 2018 and then taught again in 2019 and had two videos. Yeah, that, that course sounded lit by your, by your experiences. Pardon? That course sounded lit by your, the experiences you shared. <laughs> yes, um, and that was one example of students wanting to speak, right? They wanted works that move them forward, right? Paolo Freire talks about this notion of really education as a teaching, sorry, as a cultural resource that you're not just going to school to get acquire information in a banking, what he calls a banking system, where it's just like you are literally banking knowledge, but that that knowledge moves um, you in various ways. So when you th when I think about co-production, I think that's a perfect example, which is a course where I really sat down and as painful as it can be to look at negative evaluations, but thought really deeply around how do I the students more? How do I find texts that speak to their realities or where they want to go as well, not just where they are, which can sometimes be very destitute um, conditions for our students, but they're very interested in how do we move forward and so on. And so part of, you know, exercises I've done with them, um, more reflexive exercises where the mark is kept. So um, the only thing I want to see is you took it seriously and you didn't just write a paragraph, but you were going to get the exact same amount, whether you create course or you didn't like me and that's one example of ensuring that students are able to write freely. I've had courses um, where I've designed some of the weeks with the students as we go um, and so I think there are various ways in which um, we can allow students. So I often often have um, at the beginning of each lecture um, just a sort of quote-unquote check-in um, and also anonymous notes from them if there's something to be improved upon. So I think there's so much scope um, and I think I'm lucky to be in a discipline that encourages reflexivity, right? Um, so the whole of anthropology is around reflecting on social realities. So that's something that's mostly prized by I think progressive educators in the field. Um, and I think that really does allow us to in some ways have um, various freedom. And just, uh, to, just uh, I don't wanna go too long. Right now I'm teaching a course on Big Theory One, which is this course that's really in some ways described to me to teach by the university. And of course, teaching old anthropological theories means engaging um, racist ideas in texts. Um, some of these texts, old texts, anthropological texts, we're writing about Africans as savages, uh, the natives, and so on. And the students have said, why are we learning this material, right? Why is it that um, we have to learn about these theories where we were called savages and natives and so on? And part of this it links to what then Warren was saying, which is also that relationship between, of course, the students, um, and the educator, but also the educator within the structure, right? But both the possibilities of what you can do and what you can, one of the things I've allowed them is to find their own theories, right? So I'm saying 50%, you have to engage these theories and you have to critique them for what they were. 
But a lot of them have said, you know, we want to find our own anthropological theories that we want to think through social realities through. Just this morning on the WhatsApp group for the class, we're having this chat about um, them finding their own sources. So that's one way in which you create space for them to say, we actually do not want to engage material, even if it's quote unquote the canon, but we don't want to engage texts that are racist and anti-human um, to particularly quote unquote at the time, the of third world people. So I think there are multiple avenues to, to and obviously within disciplinary restrictions, I understand the limitations um, that not everyone always has that freedom to, to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the chapters in the book that I was particularly interested in, also teaching as I am right now, was this chapter on assessment, you know, because you've spoken a bit about curriculum design, teaching strategies, um, the ethos behind the workbook. But I think the assessment chapter also was, was really fascinating from, from a practical perspective, because inevitably, as someone who is a teacher or placed in a position um, to Im impart knowledge by an institution, you inevitably have this power to determine the outcome of a student's um, or a learner's you know, journey um, and, and give it a stamp of approval or not. And there is so much power and so many power relations involved in that in that moment um, from you know what what students feel allowed to say and what they don't feel allowed to say what you reward and what you don't reward and you you pick that apart really interestingly in the workbook in the assessment chapter so can we talk a little bit about assessment and some of the lessons that you equip readers of this work um, with after after they read the assessment chapter Absolutely. So when we think about assessment, assessment is really the currency. If, if education was a marketplace, assessment is where value is assigned. And so often assessment is not necessarily assessing what a person knows, but it's assessing the student themselves, right? So when students have certain names, when, when students have certain backgrounds, when students, when you understand the meaning, but you don't always understand the grammar, and yet you get assessed so low, for example, there's, there's value judgments that go further than just ticking a box. And assessments, one of the biggest challenges that teachers will, will, will say is that assessments, so we, we talked about the knowledge structure, assessments dictate virtually every part of the teaching process. The day is structured around teaching to the test. It's structured around how well the, st the students do, because how well the students do will determine their advancement in this very hierarchical power structure of education. It'll determine the teacher's pay. It will determine the school's performance. It will determine resources. And so this idea of a test is incredibly powerful, um, and it is the way in which the system maintains itself. Okay, And so we have to really problematize assessment and the way it is used to disenfranchise. For example, I'll give two examples of this. One is we did work in, in a school in Connecticut in which students were told that they are in college, they're in the college track. And so these students excelled in the college track only to be told at the end that actually um, that college track was just the name of the track. None of the courses that you um, excelled in are actually college eligible. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Okay. And so this idea of streams in education is linked to testing. So let's, let's, with that context, let's dive into assessment. 
Assessment is a reality. We have to find ways to prepare students to excel in the test while at the same time taking every policy step we can to dismantle the injustice and the inequities embedded in these tests. These tests do not test knowledge. They test cultural backgrounds. They were made with, with white students in mind in many cases, or they were made with certain groups, middle class students in mind. They were not made with everyone in mind. And so the questions don't ask about knowledge. They ask about cultural assumptions. For example, when I was teaching in a, a rural school in Mpumalanga, we're reading the science textbook that talks about a car travels from A to B. If you were driving the car, how fast do you, would you have to go to get to a certain point? And many of those students had never been in a car before. And so the context of even a so-called simple question has cultural baggage in it. Okay. And so we have to be able, to, 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 as teachers, to do two things. We have to understand that we are policy advocates. So we have to use our vote. We have to use our political power to really begin to question the policies and, and the curriculum that we are involved in. At the same time, we have to be excellent teachers. We have to teach what is going to help the students succeed, but we also have to widen their gaze. We have to ensure that they understand that this is not the only knowledge. This is not the only important um, ideas that they have to encounter and engage with. Um, we have to teach them how to think, not what to think. Um, and so they can see the testing as one element of their overall um, educational career. So, so in short, to shift it from schooling to education, which is broader. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry for that. Um, I think so. I think I completely agree with you, Aaron. I mean, that's why I shared um, Luanda's story um, um, in the book, the young um, black woman who for a long time in that particular department was called dyslexic, that she can't learn. Um, no one was willing to, you know, spend any time with her. And I think we know that, you know, assessments are not neutral, right? Particularly in racialized contexts, but even of course, amongst people of the same, that um, there are often notions um, of certain colors that are favored over, um, over others. And we know this no more than education, especially in the US, there's been so much that's been formally written and right with empirical evidence that actually assessment neutral and they often favor predominantly white or elite um, minority students. So I think, and I think in South African context, I don't think there's been any time than COVID that has really shown the discrepancies, right? So I do think it does raise the important question around how do we assess, right? Can we really assess students the same who have their own room, have proper functioning Wi-Fi versus, um, you know, some of my students who have to go to a hill in order to be able to get, um, in order to be able to get signal. And of course, that's a, that's a, um, a remnant of apartheid, right? And the creation of these Bantu stands or the homeland systems that have deprived, um, quote, unquote, most people in South Africa of development. So, I mean, that's something I spend a lot of time um, thinking about. Um, um, how do you assess that in a way that factors in all of these different nuances um, around, your, um, around your students and the different kind of experiences that they have till that moment where they submit and turn it in because I mean now we have this group um, with about 90% of the class and it's so interesting to see um, the differences and the kinds of struggles among students um, um, in getting the submission so I do think um, I completely agree with you well uh, 
doctors likely Chalklin and Gambella. Um, thanks very much for coming on to SMWX and sharing your experiences. Um, could you just tell our viewers, listeners, where they can get the book, how they can get the book? Um, for those who are interested in taking this conversation further, we have lots of students, lots of teachers, lots of uh, lecturers on this platform. So take it away. Absolutely. So, so, Warren, yes, um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, Kovan. The book is available uh, for purchase at warrenchalklin.com, W-A-R-R-E-N, chalklin, C-H-A-L-K-L-E-N.com. Um, if you use the coupon LAUNCH, um, this is specific just for, for this period of time, you'll get 25% off the book. Um, it is $25. It is a lot of love in that book. So please, um, when you read it, engage with it. At the end, there's an opportunity to talk back to us about what we've missed, our limitations, what you have, um, what you feel that we've missed out. So please, when you get to the end, feel free to reach out to us and tell us what your, what your thoughts were. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. All the best with the book. Ah, yeah, yeah.